Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Schoolers, they can leave now after singing with the rest of us in big church, what I used to call it when I was a kid, big church. I don't know why I called it big church, but it was big church. The rest of you can open your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Now, when I mention the following names of people, what automatically comes into your mind? Helen Keller. Ray Charles. Stevie Wonder. Homer. Not Homer Simpson, but Homer, the one that wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. These are famous people in history that were visually impaired or what we would call blind. Many of you may be familiar with Braille. Louis Braille of France accidentally stabbed himself in his eye with his father's awl in the workplace. And later on, he was the one that invented the raised bumps to where blind people can actually read. And so that was a great discovery and invention to help the visually impaired. Marla Runyon, I don't know if you know who she is. She was the first marathon runner to run legally blind. She placed eighth in the 1500 meter in the Sydney Olympics, making her the first legally blind athlete to compete in the Olympics and had the highest score of any woman in that event that year. Now, I can't imagine personally what it would be like to be blind. And some of you may have family members or friends or people that you know that are visually impaired or blind, and they've they've told you their experiences of what that means. And so one of the things that we value, and we don't even think about it, it's just unconscious to us, but it's something that, that's so dear to us that we don't even think about is the ability to see. The ability to, to wake up and, and have your vision, to be able to see. And all of the things that we have at our disposal in this culture, you've got LASIK eye surgeries and contact lenses and high-powered glasses. Some of you may have heard of the Argus II. It's not a spaceship. It's a retinal implant. It's called the bionic eye. It's for people with major um, eye problems. You want to know how much it costs? Anybody want to have this money? It's $150,000, excluding the cost of implantation surgery. And you read some of these scientific articles that I don't understand, and some of these experts are saying that within the next 10, maybe 15, 20 years, blindness may be a thing of the past. There may be biomechanical engineering, all of these advances in science that may make blindness a thing of the past, which would be a wonderful thing. But the story before us in John chapter 9 is about the man born blind. He's never seen a sunset. He's never seen his parents. Never looked at a beautiful painting. He's never seen the smile of a child. He's never looked into the eyes of his girlfriend or his wife and seen those twinkling romantic eyes looking back at him. His entire life, he's been blind. 
Now, at face value, this may sound like just a story of physical blindness. And it is, but John is taking us deeper into the story to show us that this is not just a story about physical blindness, but it's about spiritual blindness. The story illustrates spiritual blindness and the need to be able to have our eyes open to the glory of who Christ is. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about spiritual blindness. Isaiah chapter 6, 9 through 10. God gives a message to Isaiah and he says, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah, I want you to go preach to the Israelites, but they're not going to hear and they're not going to see. They're going to be spiritually blinded. They're not going to receive what you have to say. There's going to be a spiritual veil over their eyes. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, the devil. What's, what's the devil done? He's blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Satan spiritually blinded people. So the, the Bible has a lot to say about spiritual blindness. In chapter 9, Jesus is going to address this head on. And we're going to see a stark contrast between two characters. There is a main character, the hero of the story in John chapter 9. The hero is Jesus. But there are two other main characters. There's the man born blind and there's the Pharisees. How are these two characters going to respond to Jesus as the light of the world? Here's the main point or the big idea or the big takeaway from John chapter 9. It's this. Those freed from spiritual blindness can't help but worship Jesus. But those who are steeped in spiritual blindness can't help but reject Jesus. One of these men is going to worship Jesus and one of these groups is going to reject Jesus. So the question you've got to ask as we read John chapter 9 is, who's really blind in this story? Who's the one that's truly blind in this story. Now we're going to see this unfold in five scenes, five episodes, five little vignettes. So here's scene one. Scene one is the healing itself. So let's just read John chapter 9, 1 through 12, and let's just see the healing itself. Now remember, this is on the tail end of where we left off last week, where they were going to stone Jesus, and he kind of mysteriously left, and they don't know where he went, and now it picks up where he passes by and sees a blind man. So let's pick up in John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. 
The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed, and I received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. We're introduced to a man born blind. It's the only place in the Gospels where we find someone who's born with a malady, born with a handicap, born with a disability from birth. Now, here's the issue going on in the story. According to Jewish tradition and the superstition that was going on around the time, there was this idea that somehow God was punishing the parents because of their sin by having them born with a child who was blind. They must have done something really bad to get on God's bad side, and so he punished them by having them born, have, have a child born with a disability. And so it's kind of this cause and effect theology. Remember Job's friends? Job's friends came to him. They were not really his friends per se, but they came to him and said, hey, Job, the reason you're suffering is because you must have done something really bad, and God's getting back at you. And Job, throughout the entire book, says, I've not done anything bad. I'm innocent. I've not sinned. I've repented. I've not done anything bad. And that's the whole issue that, that the, these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, the, uh, even his disciples are, are caught up in this superstition that the parents must have done something bad in order for this son to be born blind. And so they ask him a very pertinent theological question. They're passing by, they see a man born blind, and they say in verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's the question. Why is this guy blind? What did his parents do? Now, Jesus doesn't give a detailed answer here, but he does give a great answer. Notice what Jesus answered in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in his life. I'm not going to get into the whole argument of whether his parents sinned or whether he sinned. That's not the issue. The issue is we've got a man with a disability, and the purpose that I've come is so that God may be glorified in this man's life. Now, I've read this passage of Scripture a lot the past 16 years, and it's very important to me because this is directly dealing with my own life. I have a son, as most of you know, Zachary, who's back in my office right now asleep in his wheelchair, who was born with a chromosome disorder. Genetically, he was born with a chromosome disorder that gives him extreme autism and epilepsy. And I do not believe for a moment that Don and I did something bad and that God has punished us with a son with a disability. He is a blessing and a joy. And not for one moment do I ever believe that somehow if you are privileged to have a child born with a disability, somehow you did something wrong and God is punishing you. I don't believe that for a moment. And the things that have gone through our minds as we've, as we've raised Zachary, when he was 11 months old, we got the diagnosis of his genetic chromosome disorder. And of course, as parents, you go through all of the emotions that you go through as parents. Why us? How are we going to deal with this? You, all the emotions. 
And we had a loving church family at the time and great support system and it was able to help us process through this and pray through this. And, and we used to pray for Zachary differently than we pray now. When he was little, I used to literally pray this. I would pray, Lord, would you please do a genetic miracle and reverse his chromosomes and make him normal? That was my prayer. I don't think there's anything wrong with that prayer. We prayed a lot of times for healing in those early days, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But in the course of time, God changed our praying. It wasn't so much, God, will you fix Zachary? It was more, God, would you glorify yourself through Zachary and let your works be on display through his life? And you see, that's really the thing that all of us should be praying no matter what issue we're going through. It's not so much, God, will you fix this? God, will you heal this? God, will you make it better? He may or he may not. God may heal you. God may make things better for you, or he may not. But the ultimate question is, God, would you glorify yourself through this? And that's exactly what Jesus says right there. He says, listen, the reason this man was born blind was so that the works of God may be manifest through him, that God's glory may be shown in this man's life. And ultimately, then what everything comes back to, the glory of God, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's ultimately the real question. Now, Jesus reminds his disciples that there's more going on here than just physical blindness. They're just looking at this man born blind and they're they're trying to figure out all that's going on. and, And Jesus reminds them and says, listen, I'm the light of the world. And while I'm here, I've got to be about my father's business. So I'm going to heal this man to show you a greater reality of what it means for me to be light of the world. He is not only physically blind, but he's spiritually blind and he needs to be given spiritual sight. Now, Jesus does something very weird here. He spits on the ground, makes a mud ball, takes that ball of mud and puts it on the guy's eyes. Now you may say, well, that's kind of gross. I don't like spit. I don't like snot. I don't like saliva. Welcome to the club. Who likes that type of stuff? But Jesus does it. And you may say, well, why spit? Well, here's what was so interesting about that culture. Saliva and bodily fluids were considered ceremonially unclean. It was not a good thing to to get in contact with another person's spit the way it is even today. We we don't want to do that just for hygiene reasons. But in Leviticus 15.8, it says this, if one... With one with the discharge spits on someone who's clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean till the evening. Why did Jesus spit? Really don't know. We know he did spit, made a mud ball. Here's my own personal opinion. And again, this is just an opinion. I think maybe Jesus was saying, listen, all of those old ceremonial rules that you guys are all hung up in, I'm just going to spit just to do it just to show you that I'm above all that and I have authority and I can heal however I want to. And if I want to spit on some mud and put it on a guy's, a guy's eyes, I can do that because I'm God. That's just my opinion. And then he tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, why go wash in the pool? Wouldn't it be just enough to have Jesus spit on his eyes and put the mud on his eyes and, and get that cleaned up that way? Why, why go to the pool of Siloam? Well, what was the pool of Siloam? It was a pool that back in the Old Testament, King Hezekiah had built. And there was a 
very extensive aquifer system. There was a spring, and there were um, channels, and there were aqueducts, and, and, and all these different pipes leading to the pool. That's why it was called scent. Notice what John tells you there. John says in verse 7, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Literally sent because the water was sent from the pool down the pipes to the pool of Siloam. From the spring to the pipes to the pool. It was the sent pool. Now, I know it's been a couple of weeks since we looked at this, but what has just happened? The Feast of Tabernacles. What was going on at the Feast of Tabernacles? The lighting of the candles. Remember, I am the light of the world, the lighting of the candles. Remember what else was happening at the Feast of Tabernacles? The golden pitchers that the priest would go every day for seven days. They'd go to the pool of Siloam and they'd get the water from the pool and they'd carry it back on the altar. So this is still wrapped up in the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus tells him to go to the pool. He's just said, I'm the light of the world. What's Jesus really saying here? He's reminding everybody, it's not the pool that cleanses you. I'm the true source of living water. I'm the true light of the world. And the pool's name may be sent, but I'm really the sent one. I've been sent by my Father on a mission to die on the cross and rise again. And so he's healed. And his neighbors are a little freaked out. Who is this dude? It was this guy that used to be begging, and now he can see, and there's a confusion. And they ask the man. We don't even know the man's name. They ask the man, what happened to you? He says, all I know, some dude named Jesus... I'm paraphrasing. Some guy named Jesus came up, spit on the ground, wiped mud on my eyes, and told me to go wash in the pool, and I did it. Now, it's interesting to find out about the level of knowledge that this man has about Jesus. He has no clue, really, who it is. Is this man out looking for Jesus to heal him? We don't find that this guy's out looking for Jesus to heal him. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the one that takes the initiative. Jesus finds him. Jesus heals him. Jesus goes and and tells him to go wash in the pool. And so really Jesus is taking the initiative to heal this man. And all this guy knows is that some dude named Jesus came and healed me. And think about how desperate this guy was. If you've been blind since birth, what do you have to lose? That sounds kind of weird. Guy comes up to you and says, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm going to spit on the ground. I'm going to make a mud ball. I'm going to put it on your eyes, and you're going to go wash in the pool. How many of you would say, okay, I'll volunteer for that? This guy was probably desperate because he'd been blind since birth, and he probably thought to himself, what do I have to lose? Jesus graciously takes the initiative to give this man sight. But we have to ask the question, who's truly blind in this story let's go to scene two scene one was just the the healing itself scene two the first interrogation (coughs) excuse me by the pharisees the first interrogation so let's pick up in verse 13 and see what happens next verse 13 they that's the neighbors they brought to the pharisees the man who had formerly been blind Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. 
But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Now Jesus has a habit of healing on the Sabbath day, which gets him in trouble. And they don't like that. They think he's a lawbreaker. They think he's not from God. He must be a sinner because he's breaking the Sabbath. Now, why was Jesus breaking the Sabbath? Well, in their minds, they probably thought, okay, he's breaking the Sabbath because this man born blind, it's not, a, it's not a medical emergency to heal him. It's not a matter of life and death. He could have waited till the next day, not on Sabbath, the next day to heal this guy. It wasn't a major issue to do it right then and there. So he's breaking the Sabbath, he could have waited. And they also could have thought that there was a Sabbath rule that you couldn't knead the dough on Sabbath. So you can't go home and bake biscuits, knead the dough, and they probably thought when he made the saliva mud, he was kneading the dough, and therefore he was doing work on the Sabbath when he made that mud pie. Talk about legalistic. This guy's obviously not from God because he's breaking the Sabbath. He's some outrageous sinner who's doing things evil. But what I find interesting about the story is the blind man comes to faith in Christ in stages. Now, what do I mean by that? We're going to see this unfold, but he comes to faith in stages. What's the first thing about this man? He has no clue who Jesus is. He's just a dude. Some guy named Jesus came and healed me. I have no idea even where he is now. I, didn't even, I didn't, wasn't even looking for him. What does he say at the end of verse 17? Oh, it's changed now. He's gone from being this Jesus guy to he's a prophet. Probably the only thing he could think to, to talk about who Jesus was because he, had, he performed this miracle. Now, what does it mean by stages? I've had this told to me multiple times here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Maybe this describes you. You started coming to Emmanuel. A friend invited you. Maybe you drove by and saw our sign. You heard us on the radio. It's, for some reason, you started coming. And when you walked in these doors, you had no idea what we were talking about. You kind of understood you were kind of tracking. It wasn't making a lot of sense. But then you came back a second time. And you came back a third time. And you found yourself like, I, I, I'm learning. I'm understanding. Things are starting to make sense. Things are clicking. And then all of a sudden, one time during the worship service, you come under extreme conviction by the Holy Spirit, and you find yourself in your heart repenting and believing in Jesus. And you really don't know what happened to you. All you know is, I'm, I'm changed. Something's happened to me. And then the next thing you know, we have a Discovering Emmanuel class, and you sign up for the class, and you come to the class, and we talk about the gospel, and we talk about salvation, and then one of our elders interviews you afterwards, and, and you talk about your salvation experience, and usually what ends up, you say something like this, I had no idea what happened to me. All I know is that something changed, and then when I came to the new members class, it was explained to me that actually I got saved, and then you were baptized. It came in stages. The very first time you walked in this door, it didn't all make sense. It took time. It took multiple exposures. But slowly and incrementally, it began to click. And you began, came to faith in, in these stages. And that's what you see with this, with this man born blind. He's, he's gone from not really knowing who Jesus is to now he's a prophet. Now, the Pharisees don't believe him. I can't believe that you would be healed, especially on a Sabbath. So here's scene number three. Let's get the parents involved. Scene number three, 
the interrogation of his parents. We need to have somebody corroborate the fact that this kid's been born, this man actually now has been, has been born blind. So let's pick up in verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received a sight until they called the parents of the man who had received a sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Christ or Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. Now, his parents are kind of noncommittal, aren't they? He was born blind. He can see. But we have no idea what happened to him. Now, why are they being so noncommittal? Fear. You see, the Pharisees are putting fear into the minds of these people. There's bully tactics going on here. If you confess Jesus as the Christ, you will be kicked out of the synagogue. That's a big deal. You may say, well, what does it mean to be kicked out of the synagogue? The synagogue was the church. It was the the social and religious life of the entire village, of the entire town. To be kicked out of the synagogue meant that you would be ostracized from your friends and families. You would be both a religious and a social outcast. And so the Pharisees started putting these bullying tactics on the people to keep them in fear for, for, for pledging allegiance to Christ, for fear that they would be thrown out of the synagogue. So his parents are afraid, and they bail out and say, listen, he's old enough. Go talk to him. We want to be non-committal on this. But now, scene four, the second interrogation of the man. You may ask, well, why are they asking him a second time? They can't deny that the miracle happened. Full proof. The man was born blind. His parents confirmed it. His neighbors confirmed it. Full proof miracle. Can't deny the miracle. So if you can't deny the miracle, what do you do? You are going to deny the man, you're going to make the man look little, and you're going to start disparaging Jesus. So we're going to attack the man and attack Jesus, because we can't attack the miracle. We're going to shame him. So let's pick up in verse 24. Scene 4, the second interrogation. Let's pick up in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, talking about Jesus. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. They bring the guy back in. Give glory to God. Put pressure on him. Attribute this miracle to God, but don't attribute it to Jesus. Give glory to God. 
He's a lawbreaker. He's a sinner. We don't want Jesus to get credit for this. Give credit to God. We can't deny the miracle, so we're going to try to discredit you. And so they ask him again. And they basically just see this man as an uneducated, formerly blind loser of a man, and they really just want to shame him. But here's the twist of irony. This uneducated, blind beggar actually becomes the theology teacher and starts teaching these men about discipleship. It's the turning of the tables in a little twist of irony. Basically, what he's saying is, if you guys are so interested in this Jesus guy, if you're so interested in his miracles, why don't you become one of his disciples? Why don't you follow Jesus as one of his disciples? Now, what did they say to that? They reviled him. They said, absolutely not. We will never follow Jesus. We follow Moses. Moses is our guy. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses gave us the law. We are disciples of Moses. If they had read Moses, they would know that Moses prophesied about Jesus. You may say, well, where was that? I'm glad you asked. In Deuteronomy 18, God gives a prophecy to Moses, and it's about Jesus. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. God's going to raise up a prophet. He's going to be just like Moses, but he's going to be a prophet. He's going to raise him up, and you need to listen to him. Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. A prophet. Now, you may say, well, in the Old Testament, there were a bunch of prophets that came on. There was Jeremiah, there was Isaiah, there was Elijah. Yes, but there was not a prophet that would speak the very word of God to whom everyone must listen. Who is that prophet? Well, Peter tells us in Acts chapter 3 when he's preaching, that prophet is Jesus, the ultimate word of God. So if they were truly disciples of Moses, they would have known that Moses was prophesying about Jesus as the Messiah. And when Jesus shows up in the flesh as the ultimate prophet, they should be listening to him. But they're not listening to Jesus. Go back to chapter 8, verse 47. We looked at this last week. What did Jesus say to these same guys? 847, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear is that you're not of God. They're not hearing. They've just got educated in the theology of discipleship from a blind beggar, and these are the guys that should have known better. He, they were schooled by this blind man. He's from God, the blind man says. He's worthy of being followed as a disciple. He must be from God. Nobody's ever, nobody could do these things if he was not from God. See the stages? I don't know who this guy was, just this Jesus guy came. Uh, he's obviously a prophet, But now he's from God. He's doing the impossible. Never in the Old Testament or never in Jewish history had anybody been healed from birth of a malady, of a handicap, until now. It's interesting that this man is quickly becoming a disciple of Jesus. He's becoming a disciple. And if these Pharisees had read their Old Testaments the way that they were supposed to have read their Old Testaments, they would know what God promised to do in the coming age. 
What did God promise to do in the Old Testament when the Messiah shows up? When Jesus came on the scenes and said, I'm the light of the world, it should have clicked in the Pharisees' minds, the Messiah is here. The light of the world's here. Because in Isaiah 29, 18, in that day, talking about the day that the Messiah would come, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. In that day, the blind are going to see. Isaiah 35, 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. In that day, in that future day, when the Messiah shows up, when the light of the world shows up, people are going to start seeing. Blind people are going to start seeing. Isaiah 42, 6-7, I'm the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Pharisees are blind. They can't see that Jesus is the light of the world that's come to release people from spiritual darkness out of the dungeon of sin and to rescue them in salvation. And they're the truly blind ones in this story. They don't see it. But they're not going to get the last word. And even the blind man's not going to get the last word. Who's the hero of the story? Jesus is going to get the last word. So let's look at scene five. The final verdict. Jesus has the final words to say. Now what's happened to the man? He's been cast out. He's been cast aside. He's been thrown out. He's been rejected. He's been humiliated. Jesus goes and finds him. Let's pick up in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Great question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He's still a little clueless here. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? I would believe in the Son of Man if, if I just knew who he was. I, I have faith. I'm ready to believe. I, I want to believe. Who's the Son of Man? Verse 36, he answered. I'm sorry, verse 37. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who's speaking to you. Now look at verse 38. He said, Lord I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Verse 38 is a powerful confession of faith. In Jesus Christ as Lord. Notice what he says in verse 38. Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. You may want to circle the word worshipped. It is the only time in the Gospel of John anyone is said to worship Jesus before the resurrection. Now many people believed in Jesus, but this is specifically talking about worship. This man confessed Jesus as Lord. He believed and trusted in him, and he fell on his face and worshiped Jesus as the Lord. Which is really ironic. Because what did the Pharisees demand him to do when they interrogated him? Give glory to God. I'm not going to give glory to God under your terms, Pharisees, but when I'm confronted with God in the flesh who's just healed me, I'm going to bow before him and give him glory. 
I'm going to worship Jesus who's healed me. Who's truly blind in this story? Do the Pharisees worship Jesus? The blind man confesses him as Lord. The blind man says, I believe in the Son of Man. The blind man worships. What do the Pharisees do? They're still blind. And Jesus gives the verdict. Verse 39, for judgment I've come into this world. I've come into this world to give judgment, to give a verdict. Those of you that think you can see, but you really can't see me, you're blind. Those of you that know that you're blind and that you're spiritually in need and you come in faith to me, you will see. And the Pharisees know that he's talking about them because it says right there, some Pharisees nearby saying, are you talking about us? Are we the ones? Do you really think that we're blind, Jesus? I mean, we're the Pharisees, Jesus. We are not blind. We know our law. We know our Old Testament. We are religious. How dare you, Jesus, call us blind? We are not blind. That man was blind. We're not blind. And Jesus says, you are guilty. If you claim that you're not blind, you're guilty because you are blind. That's what he says right there, verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains. You think you have spiritual knowledge. You think that you have all of this head knowledge of who Jesus is. You think that you have all this religious um, upbringing, all of these um, religious accolades, and, and you're stacking up your resume, and you think you can see we're not blind. I'm prideful. Jesus says, not only are you blind, but you're guilty. You're still in your sin. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. You know what Jesus calls Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew? He calls them blind guides. Matthew 15, 14. To the Pharisees. Let them alone. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. The Pharisees are blind. Matthew 23, 26 through 29. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawless. Pharisees, you're blind. You're the blind leading the blind. And here's the point Jesus is really making spiritually. Every single person is born spiritually blind. Every person is born spiritually in bondage. You're spiritually lost. You're in sin. And you need to have your eyes open to who Christ is. And that's what Jesus has come to do as the light of the world. He's come to give light to those who are in darkness. But you've got to recognize your darkness before you can be released into the light. And the Pharisees didn't recognize that they were blind. Only when you come to recognize your need, your sin, your hopelessness, then that you need Christ, then is Christ real to you and you've been transformed. What do the psalmists pray? Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes. What did Paul pray for the Ephesian church? In Ephesians 1, 16 through 18. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What's your prayer, Paul? 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Some translations say, open the eyes of your heart that you may know what's the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We sing the song, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you. So the question is, are you blind this morning? Not physically blind. Are you spiritually blind? Are you miserable in your sin? Are you guilty before God and know that you have a weight of sin and that you are in darkness and that you're living in rebellion and that you need salvation? Then don't be like the Pharisees who puff their chest up and say, I'm okay. Jesus, how dare you tell me I'm blind, I'm good. No, be like the blind man who was desperate and just went and washed in the pool because Jesus told him to and turned and looked and said, Lord, Savior, I worship you. Psalm 146.8 says this, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. This man was a foul-mouthed, vulgar, angry young man. And his job was to make sure that if any of the slaves on the slave ship had smallpox, he would throw them off the ship, even if they were still alive. In 1748... 600 slaves chained below deck. This man was a slave trader. But on one fateful night, somebody gave him a Christian book. He began to read this book and he began to understand who Christ was. He began to understand his sin. He came under tremendous conviction. And at that moment, a huge storm started brewing, tossing the slave ship to and fro. This man thought to himself, if I were to die right now, I would go straight to hell. I am a slave trader. I am a vulgar man. I have unclean lips. I am an angry man. I need Christ. And that night, on that ship, he trusted Christ for salvation. And here's what's said on his tombstone. If you go to his tombstone in England, it says this. Once an infidel in Libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. For the next 43 years, this man was a preacher and influenced thousands. You know this man not because of his preaching per se or of his salvation experience on a slave trading ship. Most of you know him as John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. You guys say the rest was blind, but now I see. 
May God in his grace open all of our eyes so that every single person in this room can walk out of this place saying, I once was blind, but now I see. Because Jesus, the light of the world, has opened my eyes. And my only response to that is to turn to him and worship. The blind man worshiped the Lord. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And let us go into a time of worshiping the only one who can open blind eyes, the only one who's the light of the world, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you spend some time in prayer this morning responding to the word of the Lord? Thankful for this story. There's so much realness to it. I can't imagine what it would be like to be blind from birth, to be a beggar, to be hopeless, and then in an instant to be given sight, and to not even really know who it was that gave you sight, but but you find out that it's Jesus, and all you can do is confess him as Lord and worship. But Lord, we all know what it's like because every single one of us was born spiritually beggars, spiritually in the dark. We were all born hopeless until that one time when Christ gave us sight by saving us out of our sin. And Lord, would we turn to you in joy because you've opened the eyes of our heart and when we worship. That's the only appropriate response to salvation is worship. Lord, we give you our all. We submit our entire selves to you not just with our lips, but with our lives. When we leave this place, our lives are lives of worship because we were once blind, but now we see. Father, if there's anybody in this room today that is spiritually blind, spiritually lost, spiritually in the dark because of sin and rebellion and guilt, would today be the day that their eyes are open and they confess Jesus as Lord and believe in him and worship him? Would you save many today, Lord, that all of us can go out of this room with new sight because our eyes have been opened? Thank you, Lord. We love you and we praise you. And we honor you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.